All right. Well, this morning, guys, we're going to be, uh, normally, if you're a visitor here at State Road, I tend to preach through like a, a series of some kind. This morning, last week, are just kind of one-off messages. <laughs> this is not part of a broader series. Uh, and in fact, this week is uh, just inspired by my own devotional readings. I've been reading in my own devotional life in Second Samuel, and I came across, again, I've read this story many times, but for whatever reason, this time reading through, it captured my attention in a way that it hadn't before, and I just thought, I think I'd kind of like to share that with my friends at the church. And it's this curious case of Mephibosheth versus Ziba. And in typing up my message this week, there were little red squiggly lines all over the place. Spellcheck does not like the names Mephibosheth or Ziba. They don't recognize them as existing. And it is kind of curious, you know, that a, you do hear a lot of Bible names. I've never once met a Mephibosheth in all my days. Have you? Has anybody ever met a Mephibosheth? No? Not a popular one. I was curious, though, I was thinking about it. Like, it's the guy's name, but ladies, if you were dating a Mephibosheth, you're not going to say Mephibosheth every time you talk to him. What would you use as like a nickname for Mephibosheth? How would you shorten this? Steve, okay. <laughs> Deb Kofsted says Steve, I, and I agree. That's a good name. I, I, Miffy, Beth, Shibby. I, I couldn't even think of a good way to shorten Mephibosheth. That's how terrible a name it is, Mephibosheth. Before we uh, dive in and explore this story a little bit, and there's two parts to this story. First, I just want to look at Mephibosheth and his story. That's remarkable. And then I want to bring it around to this uh, kind of an enigmatic thing that happens between Mephibosheth and a guy named Ziba. We'll, we'll cover it all. But just for context, this is happening, playing out in the days of King David. David... Um, in those, in those long, we actually, a couple of years ago, we studied that period of David's life when he's anointed king of Israel, but Saul is on the throne, right? Saul had disobeyed God. He was disobedient. And so God re removed the kingdom from Saul and anointed David through his prophet Samuel to be the new king. But then there's this long span of years. I think it goes on for like 31, 32 chapters, something like that. Where Saul is on the throne, but David is supposed to be the king. And in some ways, I think that mirrors the age in which we're living, right? Where Jesus is king. The resurrected Jesus, he is Lord. But there is another pretender on the throne of the earth. There is another who fancies himself ruler over the world. And in these dark days, we're living in this reality where Jesus is king, but he's not yet recognized as king. We know there's a day coming when every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, but we're living in the midst of days where Saul is still on the throne. Wicked King Saul is still on the throne, as it were. Back in those days, which we studied at length, I think that was back in 2019, if I'm right, but I don't know. Um, David struck up kind of an unusual friendship with Saul's son, Jonathan. And in fact, it's such a famous friendship 
that the Bible says that the souls of those two men were knit together, and they were like better than brothers. They were, it was an amazing friendship. They just felt a connection at the deepest point of who they were, and they were great friends. And uh, although he was the son of the king and rightful heir to the throne by descent, Jonathan believed that God had anointed David for that role. And in really an incredible demonstration of humility and friendship and faith to God, Jonathan cheerfully submitted to God's will in the matter, and he made it plain to David that he was fully supportive of his ascension to the throne. In other words, it's not just that Jonathan wasn't in the way. He was cheering him on. He was, he was fully on board with this, and he told David, I'm going to be right there by your side when you're king. He did ask David to make a promise to him, though. Uh, this is way, way before David was a king. He said to David to show him the steadfast love of the Lord that he may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. Essentially what he says to David is when your king... Don't kill me or my family, my kids. Will you make a promise to me to that effect? And David makes that promise to Jonathan. And of course, that might sound like kind of a weird promise <laughs> to make your best friend make you, but that is the way that it has gone all down through histories when one dynasty replaces another. You have to purge that household or it becomes a rallying point for all kinds of discontented people to form some sort of a resistance around. And so Jonathan says, you're going to be king, and I just want to make you promise me one thing. When that happens, will you not do that to me and my family? And David says, yes. Jonathan did not live to see David become king, though. Uh, towards the end of 1 Samuel, we read how Saul and Jonathan die together along with Saul's, uh, some of Saul's other sons. In fact, all of his sons but one. He has another son named Ishbosheth, uh, which again is hard to pronounce. It's a red squiggly line kind of name as well. But they all die together in battle fighting the Philistines. And in the chaotic, the chaotic aftermath of that battle, Jonathan's family had to flee their home ahead of the advancing Philistines. And that's where we first are introduced to this figure named Mephibosheth in the Bible. In 2 Samuel 4, verse 4, it says this, Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. That's the news that they had died. And his nurse took him up and fled, and as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. So there's some sort of horrible childhood accident. Uh, we don't know all the details, but the, this woman who was in charge of him was fleeing after they hear the news of the battle. There's an accident. It's a catastrophic accident where in both of his feet, this five-year-old boy named Mephibosheth is essentially crippled for life. Um, we don't know the extent of his disability, 
whether he could walk or not, but he was significantly handicapped from an early age because of this incident that happened on really a truly terrible day. You can imagine what a dark day this was for the family where they learned that Saul and Jonathan and three of Jonathan's brothers, all of them killed. Israel has lost a battle. Mephibosheth has this terrible accident. It is just a very no good, terrible day, I'm sure. Now, in 2 Samuel 9, we fast forward. David has become king, and he's recognized as king over both Israel and Judah. And with his power consolidated in 2 Samuel chapter 9, David says this, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Jonathan is remembering the promise he had made to Jonathan. David is remembering the promise he'd made to Jonathan. And so for Jonathan's sake, he wants to find some living member of this household that he can make good on that promise and not only not kill them, but show this person extraordinary kindness. Now, there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David, and the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he's in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you would show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. We'll stop right there for just a second. Like I said, we're going to divide this out into two parts. First, I just want to show you something that I personally really enjoyed seeing in the life of Mephibosheth. Uh, and then I want to come back to um, this mystery at the end of his story. First of all, in the Old Testament, I think one of the great joys that comes from reading these stories is finding the story of Jesus in them. And I think the whole book, the whole story of God's redemptive plan 
is about what he accomplished for us through Jesus. And I think in the Old Testament, we find lots of these sort of illustrative sketches that amount to more or less kind of a prefiguring of the work that Jesus was going to do. And one of the great joys for me in studying the Old Testament is finding Jesus back there. And so when I look at the story of Mephibosheth, some things really jump out at me as somebody who, uh, like you, is steeped in the knowledge of what God has done for us through Jesus. Um, This is just, these are the promises I cling to. And really, as I was reading this, I came to see, man, Mephibosheth is such a great picture of grace, of grace. First of all, he was doomed. He was absolutely doomed. He was of the wrong lineage. He was descended from Saul, not David. And Saul had resisted and rebelled against God and despite all of their best efforts, despite the long span of years where they had tried to put David to death, David, of course, had come into his power as God had promised, and now Mephibosheth is absolutely doomed. Not only that, but he's living afar off. We, uh, we don't have a good grasp necessarily of geography back there, but this place where Ziba says Mephibosheth is living is on the far side of the Jordan. It's almost like he's gone as far away from he, as he can without entering into the wilderness. Um, and so he's afar off. He's doomed. He was broken in the fall. I mean, that's almost too much on the nose. Um, but very much, I think, a deliberate picture of our, how broken we became in the fall how spiritually crippled we were, unable to move towards God, fearing God, being afar off. But despite all of that, the king sought him. The king remembered his promises. The king brought, sent for him, brought him to him. And he was received in his deformity, just as he was, without any attempt to improve himself. Mephibosheth is accepted. And he's accepted on the basis of what? I think this is the thing that's most beautiful for me (laughs) about Mephibosheth. He is accepted because of Jonathan, not because of himself. When, When King David first decided to seek out somebody from the household of Saul, he didn't say, find for me someone from the house of Saul who is upright, who is morally virtuous, who is whole and intact and beautiful to look at, and I want to show kindness to such a person. No, he just, the only criteria was Jonathan. <laughs> That's it. Everything else is immaterial. The person who could have been brought for him to show kindness to could have been personally an absolute menace of a human being. And all that would have mattered because of David's promises that he had made was the relationship to Jonathan. Guys, I'm looking out at a room full of absolute menaces of human beings. (laughs) I don't mean that's kind of a joke. You guys are actually great folks. But... In many ways, we're all sinners, we're all messed up, right? 
And so it's a beautiful thing for me to see that Mephibosheth is accepted by David because of Jonathan. And you're accepted by the king, God the Father, because of Jesus. Oh, you can lean into that, guys. That'll catch you all day long. That will hold the weight of your hope and your faith. Guys, that is sturdy, rock-solid stuff. And Mephibosheth is an Old Testament picture of that truth, where when we come to the king, the king who sought us, and we're brought into his presence, you are accepted because of Jesus. Beautiful stuff. And I also want us to see this. But, oh, by the way, just going back to that point I just made, Jonathan said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? That word kindness is the Old Testament Hebrew word for grace. Uh, and grace, of course, is that sort of uniquely Christian concept where what God did for you uh, is flowing not because of your merit, but because of who God is. It's unmerited favor, kindness. And that's what David is speaking here when he says, I want to show unmerited, undeserved kindness to someone from the house of Saul. Uh, the Bible says that David had a heart like after God's own. And I think here we see a picture of what's meant by that. I think this is David maybe even possibly at his finest moment, and a remarkable man, and this is perhaps the very summit of what we can celebrate about David, in this moment, he is like a living demonstration of the God of grace and, and promise-keeping. His faithfulness is really on display here. Mephibosheth, this is something else that's really, I really enjoy turning around in my own brain, is Mephibosheth got in David more than he lost in Saul. That's kind of an interesting picture it says, so Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. All that had belonged to Saul's was his. He gets so much. He's like a son of the king, even though he's a son of Saul. And we gain more in Christ than we ever lost in Adam. It's an amazing, beautiful truth. Not only did David extend grace uh, to Mephibosheth, um, and this is always impressive to me, like if somebody really did me wrong, I could see myself, uh, as difficult as it would be, extending grace and forgiveness to that person. But to then also say, and I want you to come move in with me. <laughs> It's, that's way different. And I'm not saying Mephibosheth ever did anything to David. As far as the Bible records, he didn't. It's not like they were enemies or anything like that. It's, it's more that David, though, kept his promise so generously to Jonathan. He didn't just say, I'm going to spare your life because of Jonathan. He said to him, I want you to come and eat with me and my family. I'm going to consider you like, a, I'm, you're going to be like a son to me. And that's a picture of how we become children of God. 
you weren't just forgiven, you were also brought in. He wants relationship with you. And David models that for us as well. So guys, I just really enjoyed that in my own personal devotional time. I was like, man, that's worth sharing. Mephibosheth, what a great picture of what it is for us to be brought into the household of the king. Despite being broken in the fall, despite our spiritual deformity, despite the fact that we are born from the first Adam by natural descent and thereby doomed. But now, because of his grace, he has brought us in, made us to sit down at his table with his sons, and we're right there in his favor. It's a beautiful thing, something we can celebrate. But now we come to the second part of our time here together this morning. Things uh, end in Mephibosheth's life on a bit of a question mark kind of note. And um, in the, after the events that we just read in chapter 9, uh, some bad stuff goes down in David's house. Uh, there is a grievous moral failure on David's part. He has this affair with a woman named Bathsheba. He then has her husband killed because she's pregnant. Um, there's all kinds of wickedness and disorder that flourishes in his home. He had, a he had a daughter named Tamar, who was essentially raped by another one of his sons named Amnon. And then Tamar's brother, whose name is Absalom, also a son of the king and a prince, red squiggly lines everywhere, he kills Amnon. And so in this house of David, things have gone really off the rails. Things are terrible. Absalom is not put to death by David, but David makes him more or less he can't leave Jerusalem. He has to stay within the city limits. And Absalom um, hatches a plan to rebel against his dad and take over as king. And he puts this plan into motion. He's a smooth operator. He really is very uh, gifted in maneuvering and, and navigating people of power. He does consolidate some kind of a following behind him. And then when the time is right, he springs his trap. We won't get into all those details, but what we're about to read plays out in the middle of Absalom's rebellion. When Absalom does spring the trap, as it were, he puts his plan, his coup d'etat, into motion. David is completely blindsided. He never saw this thing coming, had no idea. He's caught flat-footed and unawares. And so his only solution is to flee Jerusalem. So he takes what following he has, and they very hastily kind of head off into the hills just to save their own necks. Absalom's coming in. He's got a, an organized, prepared group of people who are following him. And so David just kind of runs for the hills. And everybody who's loyal to David tags along with him. There's this long train of refugees leaving Jerusalem. And uh, after they had fled up into the hills, we pick this up in 2 Samuel 16, verses 1 through 4. When David had passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of donkeys saddled, bearing 200 loaves of bread, 100 bunches of raisins, 100 of summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, "'Why have you brought these?' Ziba answered, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat, 
and the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, And where is your master's son? Ziba said to the king, Behold, he remains in Jerusalem, for he said, Today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. Then the king said to Ziba, Behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziba said, I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord the king. Uh, without diving into all the details and the intervening chapters, David and Absalom's forces meet on the field of battle. Absalom dies. David is left alive. He re-enters Jerusalem. And upon re-entering Jerusalem, guess who he encounters? Mephi. <laughs> Mephibosheth. Chapter 19, verses 24 through 30, we hear his side of the story. He says this, And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? He answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me. For your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go with the king. For your servant is lame. He has slandered your servant to my lord the king, but my lord the king is like the angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king, but you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry to the king? And the king said to him, Why speak any more of your affairs? I have decided. You and Ziba shall divide the land. And Mephibosheth said to the king, Let him take it all, since my lord the king has come safely home. Okay, it's all the information we have. Uh, if you were on a jury in Ziba v. Mephibosheth, I'm going to make you vote right now, State Road. You are wise, discerning people. There is no more evidence. I know we have more questions. Show of hands. Seriously, we're going to do this. How many of you believe Mephibosheth? How many of you believe Ziba? A great many of you are declining. <laughs> but it looks like Mephibosheth has it. If this was simply by a vote, uh, more, of, more of you are inclined to believe Mephibosheth than Ziba. And I'll say that's also how the Bible commentaries read. There's a smattering of Ziba's telling the truth. Most of them are inclined to believe Mephibosheth. Those who believe Mephibosheth, they seem to point to the fact that he made a demonstration of mourning the entire time that David was away from Jerusalem. And by the fact that he says to David when he says, I'm going to divide the land, let him have all of it. As though none of that stuff's important to him. Uh, they tend to put a lot of importance on the fact that this shows a heart that doesn't have 
kind of a grasping desire for more, like you would expect of somebody who's kind of trying to maneuver their way to take the whole kingdom. This is more just somebody, let them have all of it. I'm just glad you're back. So they put a lot of weight by that. Those who don't believe Mephibosheth say, well, of course he'd say those things. He's afraid his head's about to be taken off for trying to engineer a second rebellion in the midst of the first one. And so, yeah, he's just glad to walk away with his head on his shoulders. He'd say anything. So the situation is murky. I don't think anybody can be too dogmatic, and there is an argument to be made that Ziba may have been telling the truth all along. David was caught off guard by this rebellion. I think Mephibosheth had no idea it was coming either. And so Ziba, if Ziba, what he claims is true, really did happen, that Mephibosheth had this plan to stay behind and see what happens, maybe, maybe he'll come into the kingdom somehow. It's not like he had a plan. He just sort of smells opportunity in the midst of chaos. Uh, that's probably what's going on if what Ziba said was true. Ziba, by bringing uh, David these supplies, did demonstrate loyalty to David at a time when self-interest would have just kept him silent. Uh, probably from his perspective, this could have gone either way. He is taking a little bit of a risk by lining up with the guy who's not in Jerusalem. And Ziba's allegation about Mephibosheth's motives in staying behind in Jerusalem are supported by this, that in fact he did stay behind in Jerusalem. Uh, If you'll pardon the pun, it is kind of a lame excuse that Mephibosheth offers. He says, nobody brought me a donkey. I couldn't come. Now, the whole household of Saul has been given to him, including by that tally, double-digit numbers of servants. Saul was not a poor man when he died. I think he has the means to get out of Jerusalem. Maybe. I mean, maybe we can read too much into this. I think at a minimum he could have gotten word to David, I've been double-crossed by Ziba, probably. Then there is the problem of motive. If Ziba was lying about Mephibosheth, why was he doing that? Well, we could say, well, to get the property, except... I don't think he could have predicted that that's how David would have responded. He's a servant in the house of Mephibosheth. David might have said, oh, I'm going to take all of Mephibosheth's land back. That's mine now. Or I'm going to give it to my friends or to Joab. Or to... But to... it couldn't have been predicted, I don't think, that he would have said to Ziba, well, it's yours then. So that's a bit of an unorthodox judgment that David renders there. I don't think it could have been predicted. We could go on. There's a lot of confusion here. And uh, the only reason why um, I think that it is not as clear-cut as some of the Bible commentaries make it out to be is that David himself doesn't seem to know who's telling the truth. David kind of cuts Mephibosheth off mid-speech. And he says, why speak any more of your affairs? I've decided you and Ziba shall divide the land. Now, no matter how you look at it, that is unfair. Uh, That's a weird way to do it. 
David is the best sort of man, but still, at best, he is a man. And this is a very human moment. David is confused. He does not know who to believe. One of, this, one of these men is lying. He knows that. But which one he can't say? One of them has injured the reputation and standing of the other in a serious way. Mephibosheth says that Ziba is a con man, a liar and a cheat. Ziba says that Mephibosheth is an opportunistic traitor. And they both can't be telling the truth. One of them is lying. But the Bible never clears the matter up for us. David never gets to the bottom of it. His solution is just, you know what? Cut the baby in half. You take one half, you take the other. That's how we'll resolve it. I don't know what's going on. If Ziba was lying, it makes no sense to give him Mephibosheth's property. If Mephibosheth is lying, then it makes no sense for David to renege on what he told Ziba, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. This divide the property business is a tacit confession from David that he has no idea what the truth is here. I don't know which of these two cats to believe. This is how I'm going to dispose of it. Now, this part of the story I did not enjoy as much <laughs> as the first part, but I do think it has some value for us. Fellow Christian, have you over the course of your years on planet Earth ever been misunderstood? Has something ever gone down? where people looked at you differently, and no matter what you said, you couldn't make them understand or see it the way it happened. Have you ever had this happen to you? I have. I can think of a couple times really concrete. I'm not going to tell stories or anything like that, but for sure, I, it hurts my heart to this day. It's kind of the thing I wake up at 2.30 in the morning, my eyes flutter open, my conscience is flooded with faces and conversations, and I just think, man, I, that wasn't fair. They walked away thinking something about me that wasn't true, and I couldn't, I couldn't bring people around to see it right. And so that has value. I think the Bible here is speaking to this. I think one of the truths I take away from this is that we can lean into the omniscience of God. But first of all, let me say this. Um, very rarely in my experience is it as clean as a David, as a Ziba v. Mephibosheth kind of a scenario. And maybe this wasn't very clean either. I don't know. These two guys might have had history that we don't know about and but very often when I've been misunderstood, willfully misrepresented, wrongly painted in a certain light that I don't think was fair to me, I do have to own that even in the midst of, I think I was generally innocent there, but even then there were things I did wrong, <laughs> right? So let's begin there. I, you, in some ways we can't control what other people say or do or think, but... There are some, here, here's a generally a good principle. When you are misunderstood about something, 
when somebody misjudges you, the first thing you have to ask yourself, I think, as a Christian is, is there anything about this that God condemns? In the midst of this, is there anything I did do wrong? Does my conscience bother me about any part of this? If it does, then your first step, of course, has to be to confess that, to acknowledge it, to admit what you've done, or to go to the person that you've wronged in some way. I think before you can ever start to set things to right, you have to first own any bits that weren't right. And usually it's kind of a muddy mix of the two, isn't it? Isn't that true to your experience? So that's my first word to you. I think generally people love to just, we really have our feet under us when we are pure as the wind-driven snow. (laughs) And so what we try to do is paint ourselves that way. People are very intuitive. That lacks authenticity, I think. It shows that, you know, we're not a very serious person, perhaps. And so I think the first step we have to take is to own the fact that we did get it wrong in some areas, in some ways. Uh, I think the darkest year of ministry I ever had, uh, and it was a year where, I mean, food lost flavor. I I just, it was a rough, rough year. Uh, my church in Florida, um, there was a, a confrontation over an issue of truth that went horribly sideways. And one night in a Bible study, I told a man he had to get out of the church. You have to leave. And he did leave. He took about half that church with him. And that ushered in a year that was just downright nasty. Uh, It was ugly, hard. And when I reflected on that, the stand that I took was correct. But the way I took the stand was at ways wrong. And that grieved my heart so badly because I was right, but I did it wrong. (laughs) And whenever I wanted to make it about the issue, they made it about my behavior, and they weren't wrong. I'd given them ammunition. The very first thing I had to do before we as a church could begin to address the issue of truth that was at stake in the midst of that confrontation was I had to go to the man I had wronged. And I mean, if there was any house I didn't want to go up on the porch of, that was the one. And I had to confess what I had done wrong before the church. So public the sin, so public the confession. I did that. I felt freed of a burden. But still from that point on, I was never completely, I don't think, cleared (laughs) people's minds. It was dark. It was tough. And that's why this moment in Mephibosheth's life um, is so informative to me. There's some really something rich here I want you to see. But the very first thing we have to do is if there was something that we did wrong, we've got to own it. We've got to confess it. We've got to go to people and make it right. But what I do want you to see is this. I want you to trust yourself to the God who sees. Uh, I don't know how many times I walked barefoot circles in that church in Florida talking to God about the fact that he knew (laughs) and finding comfort in it, truly. Have you ever uh, encountered these words in the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus is talking not about acts that are wicked, but about righteous acts. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. 
for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Guys, you have a Father who sees in secret. He knows. To the one who slanders another, if you've ever willfully damaged the reputation of a brother or sister, maybe even within this very church, even if you succeeded in swaying the minds of the people sitting around you, there is a God who sees and who knows. He is no David. He knows the truth of it. And if any of you have ever gone forward doing the right thing, even though everyone around you misinterpreted it and misunderstood it and said it was, at, it was wrong, but you did what was right, you have a God who sees, who knows, who understands, who rewards the thing that Mephibosheth does for me is it looks past David to the one who does judge ultimately, supremely. I don't know who told the truth. I don't know if Ziba or Mephibosheth, one of these two guys, is a low-down, dirty liar and is a disloyal cheat but one of them was horribly slandered. Damage was done to their reputation and their standing. And I think there are times, brothers and sisters, where we have to go forward with doing what is right despite what people say. And I think that this is a powerful reminder to us that there is one higher than David. There is one higher than the people that we live amongst. Whoever you put stock by, Whoever's opinions matter to you, if you don't do what is right because of what they might say, you're not doing right. So lean into and trust that there is a God who sees. Jesus is very much confronting this tendency to do our Christian life in a performative way, to only do what's right if it's celebrated publicly. It says, and when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. When was the last time you prayed and no one was there to hear it? I'm, I'm willing to bet most of you that was like today. <laughs> that was the last time that that happened. But for some of us, it's been a while. You know, your prayer life has really suffered to the point where you only pray when others are there to prompt you to do it. Or, and when you fast, and this does kind of remind me of Mephibosheth's show of mourning. When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces and their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, 
and you fa your father who sees in secret will reward you. I'm not saying Mephibosheth was lying. <laughs> I don't know. But uh, I, all I want to take away from this is this. Lean into the God who sees. Trust him, believe in him, and rest in his superior judgments. And be brave enough to do what's right even if it's misunderstood, even if it's willfully misrepresented. All right, that's Mephibosheth v. Ziba. Mephibosheth won, though, right? You guys voted in his favor? Okay. All right. <laughs> All right. I, I tend to think Mephibosheth was telling the truth, but we don't know. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, you sit on high. Your knowledge is perfect. God, your knowledge is so perfect that you look beyond the things we do to the motives behind the doing of them. And Father, when I think about how you are all-knowing, that nothing has escaped your sight, sometimes I cringe, and sometimes I sigh contentedly. But God, in everything, I am reminded that you received us in all of our broken deformity, all of our impure motives. God, you received us by grace because of Jesus, not because of us. Father, even as we entertain the second half of the Mephibosheth story, we rest in the first half. That even if Mephibosheth lied and disappointed David, he still kept his promise to Jonathan. Mephibosheth did not die by David's hands. Even if he suspected him here of traitor, of being a traitor. And Father, how many times have I sinned since becoming a follower of Jesus? How many times have I chosen things other than you over you? And yet you still keep that promise to me because of what Jesus did. And God, I rest in that. God, I enjoy eating at your table as one of your children. Even though I was from the doomed line of Adam, because of Jesus, God, you welcome me to your table. And you start the work of making me straight and true. And so, God, maybe there's some here today who have been locked in a disagreement and they were misunderstood, but in some part, in some measure, they do have things they need to repent of and, and seek forgiveness for. God, I pray that they would be brave. I know part of them is thinking, I don't want to do that because they'll say, see, see, I was right. But God, it's you who sees. You're the audience that matters. Let people wag their tongues. I want to be right with you. And I want to be like you. So Father, give us courage to do what's right, even if it's misunderstood. God, help us to live in a, the life of a Christian that is true worship and not performative. That's not just a show for other people to see. God, give in me and my friends here at State Road a lion-hearted courage to live for what's right and true in the midst of these confusing days. Father, we're so glad to be yours. Thank you for this time together this morning. Please multiply this conversation in our hearts even after we go out from here.
In Jesus' name, amen.